Salutations, listeners. You are listening to another episode of the Dr. Jazz Podcast, and I'm your host, Nathan Holloway, your doctor for jazz. And it is our mission here at the Dr. Jazz Podcast to cure whatever it is that ails you through the power and the majesty of jazz music. Now, in today's episode, we are going to be covering uh, something that I'm calling AKA Jazz, better known as, also known as, (laughs) AKA, also known as. And we're going to be taking a look at 13 cases. Now, why 13? It's like, wait, that's jazz. Don't you usually do like 20-something songs, you know, per episode? Well, normally, yes. But in this case, we're going to be doubling up on each case. So some of these instances are relatively well-documented. Uh, some of uh, that are basically two different titles for what could be, and many times what really is, the exact same song. So is it thievery? Is it just coincidence? Are there a s- simple explanations or are there more convoluted answers? Um, some we will get down to the bottom of. Some still remain a mystery. So with that said, um, that's what I'm saying. We have 13 cases here. So I guess you can call it uh, Inspector Jazz for (laughs) this particular episode. I'm not exactly sure. Um, But regardless, it's kind of like the, the jazz historian in me wanting to find out some answers. So... I'm basically going to present these 13 cases to you and what I know. And if any of you, you know, the wonderful listeners here of the Dr. Jazz Podcast, happen to know additional information, feel free to write it on our website, write to me, or where you find the podcasts, like SoundCloud. So, um, with that being said, let's get to our first case of AKA Jazz, which features... Duke Ellington versus Duke Ellington.
So that's the standard that we all know from the great Duke Ellington don't get around much anymore, right? It's been covered literally millions of times. Um, but before that came this tune, also by Duke Ellington.
It's not a typo. <laughs> I'm not making a mistake. They're that similar, right? So that last tune was called Never No Lament. So I'm sitting there thinking like, well, now wait a minute. I thought that was Don't Get Around Much Anymore. So this mystery is an easy one. That's why we started off really easy, right? So the song was originally written as and originally titled with that melody, Never No Lament. That was its original working title. Um, and it was first recorded by Duke and the orchestra on May 4th. May the 4th be with you. May the 4th, 1940. 1940. Okay. So uh, Bob Russell came around and wrote lyrics to that melody because it was such a, a memorable melody. Right. Uh, so Bob wrote words to Never No Lament in 1942. It was so close to the original recording date by two years. Right. That it just became the lyric title, which was Don't Get Around Much Anymore. Don't get around much anymore. Right. So, um so that's why on some of the Duke Ellington compilations you may see, uh, you'll see a track called Never No Lament. And you're like, wait a minute, that's Don't Get Around Much Anymore. Is that a typo? No, it's not a typo. Uh, it must have been a recorded version previous to 1942. So even, at, even though the very first version we heard had no lyrics, they still kept that title even though it was an instrumental. That's why I chose that one. So, interesting. Very interesting. But, don't worry. For you uh, jazz collectors out there, no need to sweat. I got you covered. They're the same song. Exact same song. Just after the lyrics were penned, Duke decided to keep the words, don't get around much anymore. So there you go. Of course, that's a much longer title than Never No Lament, but nonetheless, Mystery Solved. So, all right, on to our next case. This one features the great Cannonball Adderley.
So, back to back, you get to hear it for yourself. That is pretty much the exact same tune, same melody, you know. Um, so, we started off by listening to a track called Lisa uh, by the great Cannonball Adderley from his album, The Cannonball Adderley Quintet Plus. And. Lisa is a composition by the great Victor Feldman, the great uh, vibraphone player and pianist. So, um, yeah, and composer. So, But then right after that, we heard melody for C, as in the letter C. You know what I mean? I hate to go all Sesame Street on you, but the letter C. Um, yeah, and it's a track called Melody for C. And it's on Sonny Clark's Blue Note album, Leapin' and Lopin'. So, dum dum, which came first? Who's who's stealing from who, right? So, Victor Fellman uh, and that tune, Lisa, was recorded. Uh, what is it? I want to say it was six months prior. Um, to the Sonny Clark recording. So six months after Cannonball Adderley recorded this Victor Feldman tune called Lisa, Sonny Clark makes one or two little changes, and it's almost the exact same song. I mean, at least the A sections, right? Um, you know, talking about A-A-B-A form, for those who don't really follow jazz form, um, that's usually like a 32-bar form. And the A sections repeat. And then the B is the bridge, right? And so the bridge is a little bit different, but the A sections are, like, diabolically similar, okay? And so this is, I mean, and no disrespect to Sonny Clark. Dude's an amazing pianist. He's got a lot of great albums. I love them on Blue Note. No disrespect. But we're just getting down to brass tacks. We're getting to the bottom of these cases, right? So... You can hear for yourself right there, hitting them back to back, that Sonny Clark ripped this melody from Victor Feldman. And if it's, I mean, that's the thing, right? I mean, maybe that's the riddle. Melody for C, as in C, as in cannonball. C, as in cannonball. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So maybe it was a little tongue-in-cheek dig at uh, Cannonball and Victor Feldman. Who knows? If you know more, let us know. And the way to let us know is, and this is our PSA, uh, you can find the Dr. Jazz Podcast wherever you find your podcast. SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, wherever you find your podcast, we should be there. Also, you can check out our website uh, if you like these tunes and you want to add these to your collection as well. And our website is Dr. Jazz Podcast, D R J A Z Z Podcast dot WordPress dot com. And there you can also uh, write to us, and we would love to hear from you if you've got more information on this. So hopefully you're digging this episode. Uh, I know we are. So 
because it's great just to you know sit back do a podcast and listen to some great music so hopefully y'all are digging it just as much as we are uh up next and we're gonna have this habitual offender <laughs> uh throughout this episode of the podcast talking about the great miles davis who celebrated a birthday this week he would have been 95 the prince of darkness himself um but miles kind of had miles was known as kind of like the picasso of jazz and i think that's a very fitting title in more ways than one because picasso i believe was the one who said um you know good artists borrow from other artists great artists steal from other artists so you be the judge you're listening to the dr jazz podcast
All right, so that tune needs hardly any, you know, um, introduction or, you know, post analysis. Almost everybody who's anybody in, in that's a jazz fan has heard that tune. And, of course, that's Flamenco Sketches, which ends and closes the album Kind of Blue by Miles Davis, which is um, still the best-selling jazz album of all time, recorded in 1959. Of course, it has Miles Davis on the trumpet, Paul Chambers on the bass, Jimmy Cobb on the drums, John Coltrane on the tenor saxophone, Cannonball Adderley on the alto saxophone, and the pianist Bill Evans. Now, Flamenco Sketches, supposedly, um, was written by Miles Davis, or at least he took credit for it. But something that was recorded, composed, and written um, a few years prior by the great pianist Bill Evans same pianist on the exact same session uh, was this tune.
Right, so you can definitively hear between that bass line, that boom, boom, and then the same major seven chords going back and forth, alternating. Very, very similar. There's one thing missing, right? And that's kind of that half-step motion, you know, that um, almost the, the, that like Phrygian sound, that Spanish sound, right? Um and I suppose that's why Miles called it Flamenco Sketches. I mean, I guess if you can steal, you know, while Bill Evans is even in the room. <laughs> and who knows? Maybe Bill Evans gave him credit, right? Um, if you can steal 90% of that tune and then just add in a couple of half steps and go, Yeah, it sounds Spanish, Bill. Thanks for the tune. It's called Flamenco Sketches now. You know? <laughs> Uh, then maybe that's the way to do it, right? I mean, talk about the best of both worlds. Not only are you taking a great, beautiful composition by Bill Evans called Peace Peace, uh, which is rumored, I believe, that that was one of Miles' favorite Bill Evans pieces. So there you go. Um, yeah, and he maybe that's the way he always heard it in his head. He's like, you know, Bill, maybe if you just changed, you know, this to this. I mean, Miles, there's there's tons of stories of that. Him going even to Wayne Shorter and Herbie Hancock, you know, in the 60s and saying, no, 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 change this around. You're doing too much quarterly here, you know, and, like, make the rhythm kind of like this. And then that's how they would do a lot of the, um, the compositions that, you know, the younger musicians at that time, Herbie and Wayne, uh, would bring in. So it's interesting. Uh, maybe he did the exact same thing with Bill and said, um, no, let's let's try this. You know, what do you think? So maybe it was a lot more interactive. I just think that Miles and Bill Evans should get credit for that, considering that Bill laid a lot of that groundwork ahead of time. And it was very impressionistic, too. You know, there's a lot of uh, Debussy, Ravel kind of sort of colors and things going on there. So beautiful stuff, beautiful stuff, regardless. Uh, but this is another one of the mysteries that, you know, we're looking to solve here on this episode of the Dr. Jazz Podcast. So, that's the cool part, is that not only are we talking about the mysteries, bringing them up for your attention, but we get to hear great music. So, there you go. All right, so our next case uh, is going to involve the great Thelonious Monk and Coleman Hawkins. Stay tuned.
Okay. So, what you just heard was a tune called Riftide um, by the great Coleman Hawkins, uh, joined by Roy Eldridge on the trumpet. And before that, you heard Hackensack by Thelonious Monk. Now, Thelonious Monk uh, recorded Hackensack, first recorded Hackensack in 1954. Although that version was from the Columbia album Crisscross, uh, it's a lot cleaner version, <clears throat> and it's also a personal favorite. And you can really—it's kind of a mid-tempo thing, so you can kind of hear a lot of the same similarities to Riftide. So, who wrote it first? Well, that's the mystery, and I think that the answer is a little bit more convoluted. See, we're getting into uh, not so simple explanations now. So, I believe that the answer has to do with somebody that's not Thelonious Monk or Coleman Hawkins. I believe the answer is Mary Lou Williams. <laughs> and you're like, now wait a minute, what? <laughs> no, but he, hear me out. So, Mary Lou Williams uh, played with the... Um, what is it? Um, she played with Coleman Hawkins on this record date in 1944. Not 1954, but 1944. And it's a tune called Riftide. So, um, but, but Mary Lou Williams, when she recorded this with... I, well, let me backpedal. It's the melody of Riftide that you just heard, but it's not called Riftide. So what it's called is Lady Be Good because they took the changes, like many of the beboppers did back then, they took the changes to George Gershwin's Lady Be Good, which is a jazz standard at this time in 1944. I mean, Benny Goodman's playing it all the time, etc. You know, a bunch of bands and combos are playing Lady Be Good, and so it's a jazz standard at, by 1944. So what the beboppers did, of course, if you don't know, was they took major popular tunes that they already knew how to solo on, and they just wrote a different head. And usually they would call the tune whatever new title it was, whether it was ornithology based on the changes of How High the Moon, or they called it Groovin' High based on the changes of Whispering, etc., 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 you know, Hot House is, what is this thing called? Love. So, um, and sometimes there were altered changes in there. You know what I mean? Flatted fifths, sharp elevens, flat thirteens, etc. Uh, but this one that Mary Lou and Coleman Hawkins recorded was called Lady Be Good, which it, it suffice it to say that both Riftide and Hack, Hackensack were based on the changes of Lady Be Good. So the chords, you know, if you want to solve that mystery, you can check that box. That's George Gershwin. Now, what we do know is that um, the Mary Lou Williams is the nexus of both of these cases in that it's hard to believe that Riftide was written first 
or the melody to Rift Tide was written first because it had that monkish part at the bridge. Up the half step, which is a very signature compositional element of Monk. So, you would make the listener think that Monk actually wrote this first. But, here's where Mary Lou comes in. In that, not only was she recording Lady Be Good with Coleman Hawkins in 1944 with that Riftide melody, but at the same time, simultaneously, it's the early 40s. It's before World War II was over. She was mentoring these young beboppers. She was like the mama hen, the mentor to them. And they go, no, it's okay. You should work on your own ideas. You should be yourself, you know. And she was mentoring a young Thelonious monk. And they would work out ideas together over at Minton's Playhouse. In fact, uh, it, it, it's been documented that... Um, it was Mary Lou who shed light on why bebop music became so fast. And that's basically because uh, a bunch of cats would come into Minton's Playhouse, sit around, and they would basically transcribe the, the riffs and melodies that they heard, and then they would take their groups and they would uh, basically try to record records and stuff like that uh, without giving the real artists who came up with these riffs, their due credit. So basically it's a lot harder to transcribe on a napkin or a piece of paper or scribble, whatever, if it's going by super fast. So there you have it. Um, but yeah, I mean, even author Robin uh, D.G. Kelly, who has a fantastic uh, biography, I mean, we're talking thick, y'all, thick, thick biography on Thelonious Monk. I mean, it's the end-all, be-all biography on Monk. So, all props to uh, Robin D.G. Kelly there. But, in that book, Kelly states that, you know, Monk and Mary Lou Williams would often work on things together. A lot of the time. This wasn't a just like a one or two instant sort of thing where great minds came together. Uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. Like hours, days, overnight sessions, hanging out and playing music, you know what I mean? Really making a, a music laboratory together. So um, I, it, it's not crazy to think that her and Monk kind of worked out these ideas for what was to later be called Riftide and that what he called Hackensack. So it's a little bit more of a convoluted mystery to this one. So, but I believe if we look closer that we can say that the answer is lies in Mary Lou Williams and her ability to not only record with Hawkins, but to mentor uh, a young Thelonious Monk uh, compositionally. So there you go. Now on to our next case. Uh, this one involves the saxophone colossus himself, talking about Mr. Sonny Rollins. Now, Sonny Rollins was one of the greatest jazz tenor players in the 1950s. He only had one major adversary, and luckily they were really good friends. 
talking about John Coltrane. Now, they both play with Miles Davis. They've both played with Thelonious Monk. Um, and they both have successful groups uh, uh, like at, well, and record dates under their own name as a leader. So you would think, surely, that there would be like a duo record, right? Well, sadly, no. There's only one recording. And I don't mean like an album. I mean one track. One song that the two of them actually played together. And that is Tenor Madness by Sonny Rollins.
Fantastic record, fantastic tune, and fantastic blowing all over those changes from both Sunny and Train. The only recorded example of them playing together. Yeah, truly a great friendship. So, I mean, how could such a legendary thing, right? A great blues like Tenor Madness. How, how could this even be in this particular podcast i mean who could steal from tenor madness tenor madness is all that i mean it's sunny who wants to rip sunny off right well to quote the great lee corso not so fast it's actually sunny who did the stealing i know go ahead pick your jaws up off the floor it's okay 
Yeah. But this particular case, this mystery, is not so soon related like the Cannonball Adderley Sonny Clark instance, right? So, this happened 10 years previous. That's right. Tender Madness was recorded in May of 1956 and released in October of 1956, right? Because the 50s were kind of like this golden era, uh, everybody says, of, you know, great creativity in jazz music, right? I mean, think about all the stuff, especially by 1959, all the stuff that was happening with Time Out and Kind of Blue and Giant Steps and, you know, the recordings for Sketches of Spain started and Mingus Aum and, you know, all those things, right? happened in the 50s. So, and of course, Saxophone Colossus, but Tenor Madness was recorded in 1956. Now, back in 1946, the great Kenny Clark, one of the fathers of bebop, Kluke himself, right? He recorded a tune called Rue Chaptal, or better known as Royal Roost, which was one of the hot and happening clubs that all the beboppers were playing at on 52nd Street. It was known as the Metropolitan Bopera House. Because I believe it was across the street from an opera house, you know what I mean? Uh, but it was a chicken shack, um, kind of like a diner, you know, food that served fried chicken converted into a jazz club. So here is the tune commemorating that place and see if it sounds a little familiar to uh, our dear melody of Tenor Madness by Sonny Rollins.
Okay, so that is Rue Sheptal, or otherwise known as Royal Roost, which came 10 years before Tenor Madness that Sonny Rollins claims copyright and, you know, compositional privy to. Um, I'm not trying to call Sonny out. I love all of these cats. You know what I mean? Um, I just found that this is an, a reoccurring thing in jazz, you know. Um, but, I mean, Sonny's got guts, especially back then, because you got to understand, you know, well, the story goes. Let me start there. Um, so if you're having trouble believing that, you know, Rollins could cop that melody and then call it his own, <clears throat> he he did the same thing for the entire band <laughs> on that session. So the story goes that uh, Miles, you know, had worked before with the great Sonny Rollins, and Miles Davis had promoted some of Sonny's original, like, uh, leader albums, etc., and basically said that Rollins is going to be a part of his new quintet before he actually worked it out with Rollins. Like, you might want to actually ask the guy first if he wants to do that before just, you know, telling everybody that he's going to be a part of the group and just assuming that he's going to go along with it. Um, so, but Sonny basically said, you know, like, no, I need to go and take a sabbatical and, and, and work on my craft. I don't feel like I'm good enough, if you can believe that. Um, so, Miles basically said, fine then, you know, but I'm going with this rhythm section and I'm going to pick the best tenor player I can. And his second choice wasn't too bad. It was John Coltrane. So, not too shabby. Um, go figure. And the rest is history. But, I mean, and... and the, let me say that that quintet was locked with Miles Train, uh, Red Garland on the piano, uh, Paul Chambers on the bass, and Philly Joe Jones, of course, on the drums. So, fast forward a few years to 1956. Sonny Rollins, who basically turned down Miles Davis. I mean, can you imagine what kind of blue, roundabout midnight, you know, the 58 sessions, working, steaming, cooking, relaxing for prestige. All those great Miles Davis quintet sides. Can you imagine what that would have sounded like with Cannonball out? I mean, with Sonny Rollins in with Cannonball Adderley and Bill Evans and all them. And also with Red Garland and Philly Joe Jones and Paul Chambers instead of John Coltrane. It would have changed the the, the course of the way that we know jazz today period so um yeah i mean so it was a big pass-up opportunity for for sonny rollins but fast forward to 1956 he has the absolute gall to sit there and call for the tenor madness recording session philly joe jones on the drums paul chambers on the bass and you guessed it Red Garland on the piano. So he basically hijacks Miles Davis's whole rhythm section. And then because he's a lovely guy, Train decides to, you know, stop over with his horn and just kind of see how his, how his bandmates are doing. You know, I mean, he's friends with Sonny. And, of course, you know, he that's his rhythm section that he works with Miles, you know. So he's just coming to see how they're doing it, you know, the Van Gelder studio and, 
see how the session's going. Of course, you know, it didn't take but, you know, half of a millisecond to have him and Train, you know, like talking and, and playing riffs and stuff like that for each other. And, and uh, of course, Sonny says, hey, why don't you just, uh, you know, record a tune with us? So that's my horrible Sonny Rollins impersonation. Uh, so anyway, he indulges. And luckily, Train does because that's, even though it was 13 minutes, Tender Madness is... Uh, the only recorded document that we have of Rollins and Drain. Two of the the best of the best in all of jazz. So, luckily we have that. Now, that still doesn't make <laughs> Tenor Madness Tenor Madness. Do you understand? Because Kenny Clark actually wrote that 10 years previous so my original point was is that if you're having a hard time believing that Sonny could you know basically steal that melody hell he stole the entire Miles Davis band minus Miles Davis for this whole uh, song on the record and then the rest of the record is basically Sonny Rollins and the rhythm section of Miles Davis so there you go yeah, and it's great, great, great music all throughout the whole record. So, all right, next case. Dong, dong. Talking about Miles Davis. Here's an interesting one because it's Miles Davis versus Miles Davis. He was into recycling way before the rest of humanity was. Check it out. <laughs> Shut up. 
Cokolwiek nie powiesz, będzie użyte przeciwko tobie, więc lepiej się cicho. Yo vine de Miami y este es parte de mi religión y no me diga que me calle. Tu as le droit de tenir le silence. Rien que tu dis va se dire contre toi. Alors tais-toi. Et toi, Samuel. Okay, okay. So you've probably heard this before if you've heard any 1980s Miles Davis. That is one phone call slash street scenes from the, which is the opening track to Miles Davis's infamous album You're Under Arrest for Columbia Records. And it features him kind of doing some voiceovers, but the music, especially the riffs in the beginning, really interested me. Um, and you'll probably know this album because this is the album, the studio album that where Miles Davis covers Michael Jackson's Human Nature and Cyndi Lauper's Time After Time. So many of those uh, tunes that became staples in his live performances of the 80s. So but that what what interests me is not the pop covers as much as this song. So this is not like snuck in somewhere in the middle of an album or anything like that. This is what opens his album. This is like the very first thing that you hear on this like landmark album for him, you know, and it's that riff. So, okay. And I'm thinking to myself, I've heard that song before. I've heard that riff before. I've heard that that figure. Where have I heard that? And then I found out where I heard it, and then I heard it some more, and then I heard it again. And I'm like, wait a minute. So I present to you the <laughs> the beta version, right? The prototype of um, of that original riff. 
So that's an excerpt of Interlude from the double album Agharta by Miles Davis. Um, you can find that exact same riff in many other live concerts, but the studio album that it comes from is none other than the uh, Tribute to Jack Johnson album. So... And I believe it's really just a John McLaughlin riff. So it's kind of interesting that here we are in like what would be, I don't know, 1971, 72-ish for Jack Johnson and the beginnings of that electric era. And then here we are in like 1982, 83, 84, 
and you're under arrest uh, by Miles, and he's he's opening up his album with that exact same riff. It's just crazy. So, um, but if there's anybody who knows how to, you know, <laughs> recycle and make something hip again, it's certainly Miles Davis. So, you know, there you go. So that's kind of the mystery, you know what I mean? I don't know why he chose that one particular riff. Maybe he's like, damn, that's a great riff. I could have used that, you know, but who knows? Um, but up next, so, it, well, let me say this. If you know maybe the answer to that, feel free to write us because I would love to know personally, you know what I mean? Uh, and you can write us. Through our website. Our website is Dr. Jazz Podcast, D R J A Z Z Podcast dot WordPress dot com. And you can find all uh, episode information and album art and track information and all that stuff there as well. Uh, don't forget, you can find the Dr. Jazz Podcast wherever you find your podcasts Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, you know what I mean? Uh, it would be great to have uh, some written reviews. So anybody who is uh, listening would greatly appreciate that. Um, but yeah, and pass it on to your friends. There you go. All right. So the next two cases actually involve one of my favorite musicians who gets slammed constantly. Uh, but I can't help but love this guy because the more I dig and the more I dig deeper into finding out stuff about him, I find that I have more respect for the contributions that he has made the countless contributions that he has made to this music. That's right. I'm talking about none other than Ferdinand Lamoth, Jelly Roll Morton. That's right. I will my to my dying breath. I will be praising Jelly Roll Morton because let me tell you, there's nobody like Jelly Roll, and that was something laughable when I quoted him when I first heard about this cat. But man. I'm telling you, this is a serious cat. Serious cat. So we've got two mysteries here where I think Jelly Roll was completely screwed over. And uh, so I'm kind of tipping my hat there. But you tell me, and you be the judge, because I don't believe in saying empty statements. That's not my M.O. So you be the judge. You're listening to the Dr. Jazz Podcast.
All right, so that's the mess around. Uh, it's also known as the cow cow boogie. Um, you know what I mean? This it's a New Orleans standard for a lot of piano players. You know what I mean? Uh, to do them walking bass lines and the octaves in the left hand, you know what I mean? But the main riff, and this goes from Professor Longhair, which we just heard do, you know what I mean? Uh, this version of Mess Around, the great Professor Longhair. Uh, whether it's Fess, whether it's Dot John, whether it's Ray Charles, you know what I mean? I think he's, yeah, he's got a version of, of this as well. They always have that riff. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter which, which version of the Mess Around that you hear. A vocal versions, instrumental versions, doesn't matter. They always have that riff, whether it's in the horns, whether it's in the piano, and it's always that bleam bum 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 boodip boodip bim bum 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 boodip boodip bim bum 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 boodip 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 bum 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 and then they get back into that groove boom bam bam boodip right. So I'm talking mainly that riff, the 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 essence of that song is the riff. And this is what I'm saying. When you play in New Orleans music, you are playing Jelly Roll. Because that riff was written 30 years before the mess around. It hits at about 45 seconds into the track. Don't take it from me. Listen for yourself.
All right. So there you heard it yourself. You heard the riff that makes up what we now know today as the main riff for the song Mess Around. And uh, while those tracks were playing, I did a little bit of quick research and I found out that the earliest recording for Mess Around was by, and I was correct, Ray Charles in 1953. <laughs> yeah, 1953. Jelly Roll Morton had long since been dead uh, by about 13 years at that point. And then I took it a step further and I said, well, it, it's also known as the Cow Cow Boogie. You know, maybe this could be like an early thing, you know? Nah. The earliest recording of the Cow Cow Boogie was by none other than the great Freddie Slack and his orchestra, uh, featuring Ella Mae Morse on vocals. And that was recorded, its first recording in 1942. Yeah. So, um, there you have it. Now, just to clarify, the New Orleans Joys, which you just heard with the great Jelly Roll Morton on piano, and who wrote New Orleans Joys, was recorded on July 17th, 1923. So, 30 years after the fact that Jelly Roll Morton wrote and recorded this record. Ray Charles, 30 years later, decided to make Mess Around. 20 years later, roughly 19, um, is when Freddie Slack and Ella Mae Morris recorded the Cow Cow Boogie. So, I think you have to give this mystery to the great Jelly Roll Morton. And once again, I, I will say it, and I will say it again, that Jelly Roll, yes, he was egocentric, yes, he was pompous, uh, yes, he was full of a lot of hot air, but I don't think it was because he was trying to necessarily selflessly promote himself, um, because he did plenty of that. But I think more he was trying to cement his own legacy in this music that he literally gave up his family name to basically choose to dedicate his life to what this music to be called jazz. I mean, he was supposed to go in for like, you know, an hour or two uh, for Al with Alan Lomax, and he wound up like, I want to say it was like over eight hours or something like that. Maybe it was 12 hours. Uh, for the Library of Congress recordings. He wanted to give everything on tape. He wanted to tell his entire story. Um, he gave up the family name Lamoth so that it wouldn't bring disgrace to his family when he was being, uh, when he was working as a, a piano professor, you know, in the sporting houses in New Orleans. And they kicked him out of the house. They basically said, you're not living with us. You're a disgrace to this family. So he changed his name. He moved out on his own. And I mean, and he tried to do everything. He tried to, you know, write all these pieces, document culture of New Orleans down on paper. Uh, basically said that you have to have that Spanish tinge if you're going to play real jazz. 
Um, and that's why you have a lot of those clave beats, a lot of those uh, dotted quarter, dotted quarter, quarter notes, uh, rhythms, you know, um, to get a little, you know, theory nerd out for a second. Um, and he, he was literally trying to, you know, fuse world uh, cultures with improvisation and jazz and all these things. I mean, so you think about the first world music jazz fusion that's jelly roll morton you think about you know uh, the first to actually put down on paper what was just an oral art form you know there's a thing uh, um, i was reading and if you go back to my last episode of the podcast you know um i've been reading ted joya's how to listen to jazz because it's not that i don't know how but it's always good to you know, beef up your chops and and have a different perspective of what to listen to. And one of the things he talks about is um, this guy Hadlock. I forgot what his first name is, but he was decided to take a lesson with Sidney Bechet, who's also a, a another New Orleans genius. And he he wanted to learn from the tutelage of the great Sidney Bechet. And so Sidney Bechet basically says, all right, now I'm going to give you this one note. Now you learn how to do everything you can on just this one note. Learn how to growl it, smear it, you know, smack it, uh, play it straight, you know, uh, all these different things. And he kind of makes the point like, is this crazy or is this actually genius? Because he goes, think about this. The fact that King Oliver, another New Orleans genius, while we're just keeping it in the family here, um, the famous solo from Dippermouth Blues with King Oliver on the the muted cornet, the whole thing was only seven notes, seven different notes, and mainly emphasizes two of them, right? But he said it's the way that he plays those seven notes. How it could, how it could moan, how it could sound like a baby crying for mama, all the stuff. Wow, 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 that sort of thing, right? Yeah. So maybe Sidney Bechet is not crazy when he was just telling this guy Hadlock, like, now I'm going to give you this one note. Now in this one note, you learn how to do a whole universe of expression on that one note and then tomorrow I'll give you another <laughs> right and and for what it's and for what it's worth Eric Dolphy used to do the same thing to just just so I'm clear that this is not necessarily an antiquated thing right Eric Dolphy uh, his parents and family said that some some days uh, when he was practicing he would just dedicate the entire day to one note and all the different things that he could do with it so that approach is followed by a lot of the great masters, whether it's Sidney Bechet, King Oliver, Eric Dolphy, but getting all the way back around to point to Jelly Roll Morton, this guy is the first to take that and put it on paper. And that cannot be overstated enough. That is the true genius of Jelly Roll Morton, is that he was smart enough to take all those things and document it and put it on paper and put it on record. Not just his piano playing and his compositions, but the bands that he created. And 
he is responsible for so many different songs and riffs that we know even today. I mean, think about it this way. He even wrote the I Thought I Heard Buddy Bolden Say, which really helped usher in all some of the, you know, the mythos surrounding Buddy Bolden and jazz. So, um, yeah, even though he claimed that Buddy Bolden mainly played ragtime on his instrument and that he was the first to really play jazz, I think he just really wanted to cement his legacy in the thing that he gave up his entire life for which was jazz music. So, yeah. And this, I mean, this is an age-old debate. Who really was the uh, the inventor of jazz music? Was it Buddy Bolden or was it Jelly Roll Morton? And it depends. There's a lot of schools of thought. But, you know, when I was growing up, I always thought, well, this guy's just really pompous. Of course, it was Buddy Bolden. But the deeper I study jazz history, I'm not so sure. And, and I say that just telling you what evidence I've I, I've read, found, and looked at. So, tell you what, if you really want to d- dive deeper into this, i got two books I can recommend very highly to you um, if you're interested in this sort of thing. Uh, there's one by, I believe, Donald Marquis called In Search of Buddy Bolden, you know, The First Man of Jazz. Uh, it's a fantastic book. And then if you want the other side of the coin, uh, I highly suggest you read uh, Mr. Jelly Lord by um, Alan Lomax, the guy who actually interviewed Jelly Roll Morton uh, for the Library of Congress recording. So uh, it's kind of like a big interview. <laughs> you know, it's just like he just basically typed up everything that the two of them asked and 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 the, all the responses that Jelly Roll had. So there you go. Uh, now, getting all the way back around a point and, and back to the music, we just heard Mess Around, which is a very, very popular tune. Like I said, it's been popular and made popular by everybody from Ray Charles to Professor Longhair that we just heard two songs ago to Dr. John. Everybody plays that riff. But Jelly Roll was actually the first by 20 or 30 years, depending on which way you want to listen to it, Cow Cow Boogie or Mess Around. So you have to, the evidence is right there through time, space, documentation, and recordings. Jelly Roll came up with that riff. Because I can't find that riff any earlier than Jelly Roll. Not on record. So there you go. And while we're on this, this is a two-for-one double feature, right? Uh, Next, we're going to talk about another song that from... some of the melody, but more the chordal structure. That means all the chords that you hear in the background. There is a definitive link between these next two tunes. And yes, this is another praise of the great Jelly Roll Morton. So don't go anywhere. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Dr. Jazz Podcast. Stick around. You're going to be thrilled with this one. my kisses and you took my love you taught me how to care am i to be just the remnant of a one-sided love affair all you took i gladly gave there's nothing left for me to save 
no good without you Take my lips I want to lose them Take my arms I'll never use them Your goodbye Left me with eyes that cry How can I Go on, dear, without you You took the part That once was my heart So why not take all of me? All of me, why not take all of me? Oh, can't you see, I'm no good without you. Take my lips, I want to lose them. Take my So if you are even a relative novice to jazz, you have probably heard that jazz standard before. Recorded by probably any one of a myriad of jazz artists, right? Okay, so, but what we just heard there is a special treat because I do love some early jazz. And that is the very first recorded version of Simon and Marx's all of me right now that's by the great ruth edding etting right and ruth edding basically recorded this in 1931 the same year that simon and marx wrote this song and you're like now wait a minute dr jazz whoa 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 there's no way there is absolutely no way that you can sit there and say that all of me was ripped off i mean shouldn't somebody have said something way before now, because, I mean, it's such a standard. Like, everybody's covered this. Benny Carter, you know, Illinois Jacquet. I mean, tons of cats have covered this. Surely, if this was ripped off, somebody would have said something. Well, it depends, right? Because if you're Jelly Roll Morton, and you've already gotten into very public feuds with not only W.C. Handy... Duke Ellington and James P. Johnson and William Willie the Lion Smith, who used to call Jelly Roll Mr. One Hand uh, because he couldn't necessarily play Harlem Stride piano. He was playing his own style of New Orleans piano. 
then you kind of wanted to twist the knife a little bit in this guy. That doesn't mean that it's right, and that doesn't mean that he's, he's wrong. <laughs> so I present to you the song called Sweet Peter that was written two years previous to All of Me. This is Jelly Roll Morton playing Sweet Peter from 1929. So there you go. You kind of heard it for yourself. Um, there's little fragments of what would become the melody of All of Me kind of in there. And the the chordal structure is almost identical, you know. And, and, and just to kind of let you know that I'm not off my rocker here. You know, I'm not the only one who, who feels this way. You know, Andrew Oliver has got a... A great, um, complete Jelly Roll Morton um, project, and he he is kind of um, 
uh, recording a bunch of Jelly Roll Morton's tunes. And with that, um, and you should check that out for sure, uh, he, he kind of gives little descriptions of some, of some of the things. And what he says about this particular one is um, Sweet Peter, which you just heard by Jelly Roll Morton and his Red Hot Peppers, uh, is one of Morton's best compositions in the typical verse-chorus song form, uh, as opposed to many of his tunes in a three-part stomp format based more on ragtime structures. Uh, this tune, Sweet Peter, as I told you, was originally recorded in 1929 by a version of the Red Hot Peppers featuring some, of New- some great New Orleans musicians working in New York at the time, including Albert Nicholas on the clarinet, Pops Foster on the bass, and none other than Paul Barbarin on the drums. He later reprised it for a solo performance during the Library of Congress interview with Alan Lomax. That's what I was telling you about. The verse is really catchy, and as James DePogny pointed out in his exhaustive book of Jelly Roll Morton transcriptions, the chorus is very similar to the standard All of Me, which was recorded and written two years after Sweet Peter was recorded. So, I'm not the only one who feels this way, and hopefully you could hear it as well. Uh, But again, if you want to check out Andrew Oliver's great, great music, he's got a bunch of these clips on YouTube where he's going through Jelly Roll Morton's entire um, legacy and recorded and written content. So um, I highly uh, advise you to check out Andrew Oliver's website. It's Andrew Oliver, A-N-D-R-E-W-O-L-I-V-E-R.net. So give Andrew a... A quick look-see and a listen, and yeah, there you go. All right, so that's um, my two mysteries surrounding the great Jelly Roll Morton, and they both kind of point to him as going, yeah, boss, you had it first. So uh, up next, one of the names that we just mentioned, um, well, a bunch of the names that we just mentioned. Now you got that. So next, our next case of comparison also known as, is Make Me a Pallet on the Floor. This is an old standard, uh, and uh, we're going to kind of keep along with this theme a little bit. And uh, so don't go anywhere. Stick around. You're listening to the Dr. Jazz Podcast. I don't want 
want to hear no springs to spoil my evenings. So make me a pallet on the floor. Make me a pallet on the floor. Make me a pallet on the floor Tonight is quiet and still Mmm, babe, what a thrill So make me a pallet on the floor Make me a pallet on the floor Oh, make me a pallet on the floor I said, oh, baby, oh What makes me love it so That pallet That pallet on the So that was Make Me a Pallet on the Floor. And that was actually one of my favorite versions of that. Um, it is actually a very, very early standard in jazz. Um, and that was no doubt by the great Sidney Bechet. And that was recorded in 1940. And what's really cool about that is that you actually got to hear not only Sidney Bechet play on that track... But you also got to hear Sidney Bechet put vocals to that track. That's right. That was the great Bechet himself on the vocals. So, quick background here. Um, make me a pallet on your. Make me a pallet on the floor is also known as make me a pallet on your floor, which is also known as just make me a pallet. And it could also be written as palette on the floor, right? So there's like four variations there, right? If that was the, the name of this next song, then I wouldn't have a problem with it. I'm like, okay, it's close enough. I get it. I get it, right? Um, and by the way, in case you're wondering what a palette is, it's not like a wood palette like you find at like Lowe's or Home Depot or anything like that. You know what I mean? No, 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 no. What a palette is, uh, according to Jelly Roll Morton, he kind of explained the title. A palette is something that you get some quilts, and in other words, it's like a bed that you make on a floor without any four posts on it. You know, so basically, you kind of—it's like before the days of air mattresses. You know, so you just stack a bunch of quilts, and somebody lays on top of all those quilts, and it's like a little bed on the floor, right? 
Okay. It's a 16-bar song. Um, some people call it a proto-blues uh, because it has a lot in common with the regular blues as far as structures and, and things like that. Um, but what's interesting is what I'm about to tell you afterwards. So, that being said, here is the great Louis Armstrong playing a composition by W.C. Handy entitled The Atlanta Blues. Now, that doesn't sound like pallet on the floor, make me a pallet, make me a pallet on your floor, or make me a pallet on the floor. It's called The Atlanta Blues. <laughs> satisfied If I could grab a train and ride If I make Atlanta with no place to go Just make me a pallet on the floor So give everybody my regards I'm coming if I have to ride the road I'll grab me an arm full of train before you know So make me a pallet on the floor Take it, buddy! Pallet on the floor. Yes, gate make a little old pallet on the floor for me there. Now here's one thing that I want you to know. Just make me your pallet on the floor. Take it from it! 
wah, 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 <laughs> and many, many more. <laughs> okay, so we just heard Louis Armstrong, the great Louis himself, uh, play W.C. Handy's The Atlanta Blues from his Columbia album, Louis Armstrong Plays W.C. Handy. So how do we get... Make me a pallet on your floor, the floor, make me a pallet, you know what I mean, all that, to the Atlanta Blues. And did W.C. Handy actually write it? See, there's two questions with this particular case. Um, so, a little bit of digging led to this. So, the tune, Make Me a Pallet, uh, probably originates from the end of the 19th century. Um, the song could have been sung around New Orleans in the mid-1890s. Now, do you know who was playing in the mid-1890s? In New Orleans? Well, that would be the great buddy Bolden. Hmm... So a 1906 report in the Indianapolis Freeman referred to a performance of the song, Make Me a Pallet, by, quote-unquote, the Texas teaser, Benny Jones. It appeared in sheet music in 1908 as part of Blind Boone's Southern Rag Medley No. 1, Strains from the Alleys. So, there's already a printed version in 1908, a documented version of it being performed live by Benny Jones in 1906, and then relative reason to believe that it was being performed around New Orleans in the mid-1890s. Okay. Uh, the lyrics for Make Me a Pallet first appear in a 1911 article by Howard Odom, who was a folklorist who had transcribed the lyrics from a performance he heard in Mississippi a few years before. So, you can go back to 1911, you can go back to 1908, 1906, or the mid-1890s. Right? Okay. So, Early recordings of this song have been made by numerous people. Virginia Liston recorded, quote, Make Me a Pallet uh, on OK Records in 1925. A year later, in 1926, for Columbia Records, the great Ethel Waters recorded Make Me a Pallet on the floor. The great blues musician Mississippi John Hurt, who was one of my brother's favorites, uh, recorded for OK Records in 1928, Ain't No Tellin'. So, you know, I guess that's another version of it. Um, and then even the country music duo, the Stripling Brothers, recorded Pallet on the Floor for Decca Records in 1936. But during a live ses session captured by, you guessed it, Here's the name again, Alan Lomax, the same guy with Jelly Roll. He caught Delta Blues guitarist and singer Sam Chapman. And during uh, an account 
by Mr. Chapman. He said, When I first started picking guitar, it was about the first or second song I ever learned. I was about four years old. And that would have made the year 1900 when Sam learned the song in Bolton, Mississippi. So, given what Mr. Lomax found out from Mr. Chapman, making that 1900, and uh, what some jazz historians think that th this song could have been sung and played around New Orleans in the mid-1890s, I would put that as probably the most accurate. 1895 to 1900. Now, here is a very widely circulated tune known to be a standard, but some sources attribute the modern score to W.C. Handy, who later modified it into a song known as the Atlanta Blues. Now, W.C. Handy did not publish the Atlanta Blues until 1923. Featuring lyrics credited to Dave Ellman. And the first recording of the melody appears in W.C. Handy's bands in 1917 on a performance of Sweet Child. So, Handy recorded it in 1917, but it was widely circulated way before that. Now, granted, Handy published it in 23. It was included in a performance by W.C. Handy from 1917. Both of these predate the 1925 Virginia Liston record, the 1926 Ethel Waters record, the 1928 Mississippi John Hurt record, and the 1936 Stripling Brothers. But it doesn't... Let me repeat. W.C. Handy's earliest performance and publishing does not predate the lyrics uh, appear appearing by Howard Odom in 1911. That's six years previous to Handy's performance. And 12 years previous to him actually publishing Atlanta Blues. And it's 19... 17 and 1923 from Mr. Handy is still well after the 1890s to that 1900 threshold. Now, don't get me wrong. I may come off as sounding like I'm very anti-WC Handy. That's not, that's not true. It could be the furthest thing from the truth. So, I love St. Louis Blues and Ole Miss Blues. Uh, Beale Street Blues is one of my absolute favorites. That's a genius blues. Uh, I mean, Careless Love, tons of great songs, you know what I mean? And in fact, one of my favorite songs from that Louis Armstrong W.C. Handy album, plays W.C. Handy, is Long Gone from Bowling Green. I mean, the trombone work of Trummy Young is just so raw. I mean, you want to hear where trombone shorty, Big Sam, and all them cats are coming from? Go back and listen to Trummy Young on that recording. It's incredible. And I do. you got to understand, I'm also a cat from Alabama. So, W.C. Handy, father of the blues, you know what I mean, uh, was born in the state of Alabama. So, I've actually been to the, the Handy house you know, back when I was in school. That was quite a, a moving thing, you know. Um, but, truth is truth. So, 
I think what happened is is that Handy, uh, like many you know people looking to grab an edge at the time, knew that this is a very popular tune, knew that this is a a standard, and probably knew that no one actually uh, legally retained credit for this. So he took it, he added a little intro, and called it the Atlanta Blues. So that's what I think happened. Um, but once again. I'm going to invite you to, you know, tell me if you know otherwise, because I, I, I love just finding out information and uh, getting the truth on these matters. So if you'd like to write to us, let me, you know, pr uh, plug this again. Please check out our website and write to us and let us know if you have any additional information on this. Uh, our website is Dr. Jazz Podcast, D-R-J-A-Z-Z Podcast dot WordPress dot com. And don't forget, you can find the Dr. Jazz Podcast wherever you find your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, etc. Please share with your friends. And now, let's get to another case. Dun -dun. This one is <laughs> one that caught a little bit of attention, and then it kind of died down. Uh, this one deals, again, with... Uh, our <laughs> habitual offender, the great Miles Davis. Um, here is Miles Davis from an early prestige album called Walkin', and here is the track Solar. You're listening to the Dr. Jazz Podcast. Thank you. 
the track Solar by the great Miles Davis supposedly written by Miles Davis just so you know and um, yeah so Miles recorded that uh, two different times one um, in 1954 by the Miles Davis Quintet and then again there on Walkin um it is considered a jazz standard, and of course Bill Evans also covered this uh, in 1961 from his famous Sunday at the Village Vanguard. Um, but I'm pretty sure that Miles did not write this song, so um, which is interesting, and we'll get into that. But I'm going to let you hear the little snippet of a tune called Sunny by Chuck Wayne and you be the judge So, pretty similar, right? So, now comes the main question. Who did it first? Right? Okay. So, let's recap for a second. We've just heard Solar by Miles Davis. And we've heard Sunny by guitarist Chuck Wayne. Okay. So, Miles wrote, supposedly, and recorded... Solar in 1954, uh, first with his, it first appeared uh, with on the Miles Davis Quintet from 1954. Okay. So, the composition, Solar, was copyrighted in Miles Davis's name, but not until 1963. Hmm. However... Musicians, and many others, believe it had been written, written by Wayne, by Chuck Wayne, right, as Sonny. With some making uh, an assertion in print, like they actually wrote about it. 
Proof of the suspicions appeared later. So in 2012, we're talking many decades past the point, an archivist at the Library of Congress, this seems to be a recurring theme here, an archivist at the Library of Congress actually revealed the material donated by Chuck Wayne's wife the previous year. And it included an unreleased recording of the guitarist playing the tune Sonny at a jam session in 1946. And that's the snippet that you just heard from. That's all we can find, but I'm providing it for you. It was known then by the title Sonny. S-O-N-N-Y. And it was after the trumpeter Sonny Berman, who also played at the jam session. Chuck Wayne is believed to have written Sonny when he was a part of Woody Herman's band back in the Thundering Herd of 1946. So the melodies to Sonny and Solar are the same. Miles Davis altered the opening, the major chord of Wayne's composition, by making it minor. So he literally just changed one chord. Now, this is pretty um, interesting. Because 1946 versus 1954 is quite a considerable amount of time difference. And perhaps, because it wasn't on a widely uh, available album, Miles thought that he could get away with this. It could be that Chuck Wayne and some of the other cats from the, the, the Woody Herman band um, like uh, Sonny Berman and other cats maybe just played this a lot at jam sessions and just never recorded it. And so Miles, you know, was very known to go to many uh, clubs and sessions and just listen in. And he could have sit there and thought, well, this is a simple enough melody. I'm just going to jot this down. And then he wound up recording it and uh, as Solar and then copywriting it in 1963. But it doesn't change the fact that it was originally from the mind of guitarist Chuck Wayne in 1946. And furthermore, it's dedicated to one of his buddies, Sonny Berman. Now, you would just sit there and say, like, well, okay, that's the end of the case, right? So, obviously, Chuck Wayne wrote it. Let's move on to the next thing. Here's the crazy part. This is this is the thing that just adds insult to injury, if you ask me. So, you know, Miles is, is buried in New York, and he, he has a tombstone uh, that says Sir Miles Davis in memory of Sir Miles Davis, and it's got a trumpet, right? And then there's like some some music below his name that says Sir Miles Davis. And it's the first two bars of Solar. Yeah. So this tune that he wrote, supposedly, is on his tombstone. And now we actually can, unfortunately 
sit there and say like, yeah. So Miles Davis has Chuck Wayne's song on his tombstone. Hmm. Right? Now keep this in mind. Miles probably didn't know this and neither did the family when they made that decision. To be fair and to be honest. Because Miles passed away in 1991. And Chuck Wayne's wife did not give those you know, things over to the Library of Congress uh, and, you know, until 2011. And it wasn't even until 2012 that this recording by Chuck Wayne surfaced. So, it's one of those things. Um, what do you, what do you do? You know, do you just kind of leave it? Or if you're part of the Miles Davis estate, you know, or the family or whatever, do you try to change it to, like, blue and green? So what? You know, I mean, who knows, right? Uh, but that's a different discussion, I guess, for a different day. But it's up to us to kind of dig and find out these things. And, yeah, so we're kind of being jazz super sleuths. So, it, it, and it presents... Sometimes like this, even more questions from the original questions. So there you go. All right. We are moving on. Onward and upward. So up next, we are going to be talking uh, about a new case uh, involving the great Kenny Dorham, as the great R. Blakey would say. Um, yeah. So this one is, is two great 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 track so just sit back and enjoy Thank you. 
right. So that is the great Kenny Dorham. Uh, Kenny Dorham on the trumpet from his album, Quiet Kenny. Fantastic album. If you've never uh, heard that album before, you by all means need to go and check out that entire album. It's one of the greats. Uh, that was recorded in that magical year of 1959, uh, although it was released in February of 1960. And it features, along with Kenny Dorham on the trumpet, the great Tommy Flanagan on piano, Paul Chambers, Mr. PC himself on the bass, and one of my favorite drummers, Art Taylor, on the drums. And it's the actual track that opens up the entire album, Lotus Blossom which is an original composition by Kenny Dorham. Um, yeah, it, it's, it was uh, actually released on the New Jazz label, which is later converted as part of the whole catalog of OJC, Original Jazz Classics, on CD. Um, and it's uh, the, the tune Lotus Blossom is not to be confused with Sweet Lotus Blossom by Kozlow and Johnston. But even though, and, and this is this is the crazy part, even though this is Kenny Dorham's original composition, and it was recorded in 1959 and released in 1960, it still wasn't the, the very first version of this. Nor did it have the same title. Listen up, and we'll talk about it right after this song.
Pride. So there we just heard the track Asiatic Rays. And it comes from the one and the only Sonny Rollins. Uh, off of his Blue Note Records album, Nukes Time. And of course, that features the great Sonny Rollins on the tenor saxophone, Wynton Kelly on the piano, Doug Watkins on the bass, and the great Philly Joe Jones on the drums. Uh, this was recorded in 1957 and released in 1959. So this predates the 1959 recording of Quiet Kenny by Kenny Dorham and the release of Quiet Kenny in 1960. Um, <laughs> which, side note, real quick, take a pause. If you haven't listened to Nuke's Time by Sonny Rollins, the track Surrey with a Fringe on Top from Oklahoma, which is a duet between the tenor saxophone of Sonny Rollins and the drums of Philly Joe Jones is worth the price of admission alone. So, that being said, uh, back to Asiatic Rays versus Lotus Blossom. <clears throat> so, even though uh, Kenny Dorham's version is called, and it's his tune, by the way, and at least, I will say this, Sonny Rollins gives Kenny Dorham credit for Asiatic Rays. So when you look at who wrote what, um, he plays tune-up, which is Sonny Rollins does, by the way. He plays tune-up, which is written by Miles Davis. He plays Asiatic Rays, which is written by Kenny Dorham. He gives him compositional credit. Uh, and Wonderful Wonderful by Edwards and R Raleigh. Sorry, with a fringe on top by Rodgers and Hammerstein. Uh, Blues for Philly Joe, which is an original composition by Sonny Rollins and Namely You. Uh, by Gene DePaul and Johnny Mercer. So, he at least gives Kenny Dorham credit. So, what it says about this tune is that um, it features... Uh, what is it? Quiet Kenny is an album by jazz trumpeter Kenny Dorham uh, that features his own composition, Lotus Blossom, which was recorded earlier by Sonny Rollins under the title Asiatic Rays. The tune has been recorded under both titles subsequently. So, um, it could be that when Kenny Dorham first wrote the tune, he wanted to call it Asiatic Rays. Um, kind of with a nod to the east, if you will, the far east. And instead, he thought maybe uh, a cooler title would be Lotus Blossom. Now, let me also give a an asterisk addendum to this, in that this original composition by Kenny Dorham should not be confused with two other jazz songs, by the same title, Lotus Blossom. Uh, for the sake of confusion, it would have been better if Kenny Dorham would have kept the title Asiatic Rays. But he decided to go with Lotus Blossom. Now, it's not the same Lotus Blossom as the Billy Strayhorn composition, Lotus Blossom, uh, which was so beautifully uh, recorded by Duke Ellington on the album And His Mother Called Him Bill, which was all Strayhorn compositions. It is also not the title Lotus Blossom, which was written by guitarist-vocalist Michael Franks 
and later recorded by David Sanborn. Not that Lotus Blossom either. So there are, if you're keeping count, three separate jazz compositions with the title Lotus Blossom. Just putting that out there, just to clear things up. All right, so we've got two more cases for you uh, on this edition of AKA, also known as Jazz. <clears throat> and um, we're going to go back, since we just mentioned Duke Ellington, to a Duke Ellington uh, standard. Uh, it's played by many, 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 many uh, people, and it's one of uh, the hallmarks for Duke Ellington. And it's a tune called What Am I Here For? Stick around.
right, so what we have there is the classic Duke Ellington Blanton Webster band playing one of Duke Ellington's most famous songs. What am I here for? Right, recorded in 1942, uh, part of one of the, the heights of the Duke Ellington Orchestra, the Jimmy Blanton Ben Webster band, right? Um, you know, that same band had tons of great hits, uh, specifically uh, Cottontail, uh, which is a huge feature for Ben Webster, Concerto for Cootie, which is uh, for a huge feature for trumpeter Cootie Williams, Coco, Conga Brava, Jack the Bear, etc., etc., etc. So, and of course, What Am I Here For?, which we just heard. Now, um, the interesting thing is, you know, Duke's recorded this and re-recorded this tons of times, but not just that, it, it's also, it was so popular, it spread to a lot of other cats as well. Uh, ben Webster has covered it on his own, uh, as well as Cat Anderson, Jimmy Hamilton. Um, but it should also be noted that Marion McPartland has covered this, Paul Gonzalez, of course, um, Earl Hines, Ralph Burns, Stefan Grappelli, Oscar Peterson, Milt Jackson, Hank Jones, Jimmy Rolls, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughn, Lambert Hendrickson Ross, Lena Horne, uh, Johnny Mathis, and of course, even the great Count Basie uh, found it so perfect for his style and his band that he recorded it on his landmark album for Verve Records, April in Paris, in 1957. So, now, right now you're, you're, you're probably thinking, like, I am totally either really trying to dig up dirt or... You know, I'm the devil incarnate. <laughs> uh, because I just keep, like, you know, bringing up these things, and you're like, how, what, what, what? No, not Duke. No, no. Not again. Not Duke Ellington. You know, this is like America's Greatest Composer. And I agree. He is America's Greatest Composer. And if you even look at some of the past episodes of the Dr. Jazz Podcast, you know just how deeply... I love the Duke. But truth is truth. Right? Truth is not always an easy thing. Um, truth is always the honesty is always the best policy, even though it may not be the easiest policy. Right? So, that being said, it's possible. And he would have had to really reach back. You know what I mean? And maybe he just had. Um, a record collection or somebody uh, played him uh, a record that he kind of kept in his subconscious and then in 1942 you know what I mean right before he recorded this and he wrote what am I here for maybe this melody this you know fragment this idea came to him from a record way back way back in the 20s from Thomas Morris. You be the judge.
Okay, so that was the Bull Blues, E flat number one blues by Thomas Morris, and that tune was recorded in June of 1923 for the OK record label. So this is kind of a toss and a turn with this particular case because the rest of the tune is not the typical AABA form that Duke Ellington wrote, What Am I Here For? The bridge to What Am I Here For? is completely non-existent in Thomas Morris's The Bull Blues. But you cannot get over quarterly and melodically that intro to The Bull Blues. That intro is definitively the melody to the A sections of What Am I Here For? So, now, I'm I'm trying to piece this together. Duke Ellington, I believe, started recording in 1924, just a year later, and um, he also recorded for the OK label, just like Thomas Morris did. So... I'm curious uh, if perhaps uh, someone was spinning that record uh, and maybe at, like at, at the OK, you know, um, studio. Um, maybe Duke bought a couple of OK records before he signed on to OK to kind of check out, you know. Maybe he had this record by Thomas Morris. Um being a fan of the label, the OK Record Company. It's hard to say. But that still doesn't necessarily set away the time of 20 years from, I mean, 19, but still, from 1923 to 1942. Right? I mean, that's such a long period of time to keep that particular melody in your head and to not only hit it on the nose with the melodic parts of the melody but also the harmonic parts of the chords underneath so once again I'm just blown away at at how similar this one is so um, again if there are any historians out there of you know, super sleuth jazz fans or, you know, people who actually happen to know why Duke uh, took that intro from Thomas Morris's The Bull Blues and made a hit out of it with What Am I Here For? Please, by all means, write to us. Let us know because, you know, uh, we just want to know here at the Dr. Jazz Podcast. So, uh, And the way you can do that is uh, you can write to us through our website, and we will get that email. And that our website is Dr. Jazz Podcast, D-R-J-A-Z-Z Podcast, no spaces, dot wordpress.com. And uh, there you can find out the information for every episode and the album art and everything. But you can also write to us and, and, and let us know maybe some of these answers if you have them. 
We would love to, to know. Um, past that point, you can also uh, write comments uh, on the SoundCloud page. So uh, you can find the Dr. Jazz Podcast on SoundCloud, and there's a chance for you to write a little uh, snippet right where you know the song occurs. And uh, that would be great if you'd rather do it that way, if that's easier. Um, but yeah, you can find the Dr. Jazz Podcast there at SoundCloud, uh, at um, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, etc. And uh, keep in mind, we, we don't, we're not making any money on this. We are just um, huge jazz fans who love this music, want to promote this music and and kind of find out more and more and more and dig as deep as we can into this music. In fact, we at the Dr. Jazz Podcast, we pay to uh, have this music, our, our podcast, put up there. You know what I mean? So we're not making money. We're actually losing money. We're paying uh, for a, a license to, to do this. So there you go um, through SoundCloud. So... Uh, it's not about money. It's about knowledge and about the love, the, the pure, um, undiluted love for this music and these artists. So, um, so yeah, if you know, please reach out to us and let us know. Okay. Uh, we got one more uh, case left, and uh, I just want to take this moment real quick to say thank you so much for listening. I hope you've sincerely dug this podcast. Um, we enjoy all of our podcasts, and this has been a really interesting one and a very special one at, on top of that. So uh, thank you, and uh, let's get to this. We're going to first listen to a tune that has been recorded and re-recorded many times for the Count Basie Band. Uh usually with the great Jimmy Rushing on vocals and Mr. 5 by 5 if you will and this is the Basie standard I left my baby you're listening to the Dr. Jazz podcast <laughs> No getting along 
Spacey. And Mr. 5x5, Jimmy Rushing with I Left My Baby. All right. Now, that was also one of the tracks uh, that was featured on the CBS special, The Sound of Jazz, uh, that featured tons of great stars in that uh, TV broadcast. Billie Holiday, Jerry Mulligan, uh, Lester Young, Coleman Hawkins actually playing together. Ben Webster was there. Count Basie was there. Uh, Man, so many great stars. Uh, Roy Eldridge was there. Yeah. Tons, tons of great, great, great cats. So, and that's one of the ones, uh, I Left My Baby, that's one of the ones that Jimmy Rushing sang with Count Basie way back on that early recording from 1939. So you're going, yeah, it's a great tune, it's a great arrangement, like, what's wrong with that? It's a blues, you know what I mean? What's the big, what's the big deal? Well, I found a completely different title tune that sounds really close to that i mean i'm gonna let you be the judge but this is by sloke and ike and it's charlie slocum on the vocals and the great banjo ikey robinson from two years previous to the basie band we're talking 1937 now This wouldn't be that big a deal, except that Banjo Ike Robinson was known for being honest. He played honest music. No tricks, no scams, no pretenses. He played extensive banjo, guitar, and even played a little bit of clarinet. And he had a group called the Windy City Five. And, I mean, he started making records in 1929. Um... He played with Omer Simeon uh, on one of his great tracks, Got Butter on it. Uh, he had a, a, a great uh, record with Reddy Hokum. Uh, he played uh, with Jabbo Smith, the great trumpet player. And um, there's a lot of cool stuff with Banjo Ike Robinson, you know. And um, the, the stuff with Charlie Slocum is like kind of like blues guitar mastery. I mean, this guy's played with a whole wide range uh, of cats, but he, he kind of, toward the end of his recordings there, kind of settled in like a blues guitar thing, you know. So, um, and he was a master at jazz and blues um, as an instrumentalist and a vocalist and multi-instrumentalist and vocalist, you know. So, that being said, you got to give the credit where credit is due because here's the issue I have. Most people who know anything about jazz, you can say the name Count Basie and they'll recognize it, right? Right. A little bit, go a little bit deeper, a little bit more seasoned jazz fans and you go Jimmy Rushing and they go, oh yeah, Mr. 5 by 5 the cat who sang with Count Basie. You're like, okay. But then how many, just exactly how many cats really know recordings or even the name Banjo Ike Robinson. As far as, I mean, there's a lot of people. I could just tell you that, you know, I came up with the storyline and the fictional character was Banjo Ike Robinson and there would be a great number of people that would just go along with it. So, and that ain't right. That's not the truth. The truth is, is that Banjo Ike Robinson was a great multi-instrumentalist and player 
and and vocalist, and he had a great deal of, of really good recordings with some really great players, too. So I'm going to let you hear what Banjo Ike Robinson did with Charlie Slocum two years previous to that recording by the Count Basie Band. And this tune is not called I Left My Baby. This tune is called Chocolate Candy Blues. I left my pretty baby Standing in that doorway crying Yes, I left my pretty baby Standing in the doorway crying She said, Daddy, you got a home Just long as I got mine But my mama, she told me Papa, he told me too Now then my mama, she told me Papa, he told me too They said someday, son These women will be the death of you It's chocolate candy Kill my daddy dead Yes, chocolate candy Kill my daddy dead And that same old candy Have gone on to my head I had me three women, by none I tried to make it four. Yes, I didn't have but three women, I tried to make it four. So if one pretty mama quit me, Lord, Lord, I would have three more. And their blues look sorrow Tears they keep falling down Yeah, blues they struck sorrow Tears they keep falling down Yes, yes, that woman that I'm loving She's talking about leaving town Meanwhile, little woman, find her and two, three more. Yes, mean my good woman, find now and two, three more. Yeah, we've been had a good time. Yes, yes, everywhere we go. All right, Chocolate Candy Blues by Banjo Ike Robinson and great vocals by Charlie Slocum there, Sloke and Ike. And it's interesting because it's kind of like a major 
blues. It's like your typical blues, right? It's in like they, that, that major kind of sonority where Basie did the arrangement in minor, made it very big band and sounding and, and, and very uh, in vogue for the time. So there you go. I think the first goes to Banjo Ike Robinson with Charlie Slocum. So that's the mystery solved with that. So thanks for tagging along and listening to the this episode of the Dr. Jazz Podcast. We sincerely hope you dig it and that, um, you know, you, you've enjoyed kind of finding out uh, some <laughs> some truths, you know, uh, about all these interesting tunes. And if you've not heard some of these tunes, and hopefully you found some new favorites to, you know, uh, add to your jazz collection and your listening experience. So that's what we're here for is uh, kind of interactive, if you will. Uh, a jazz experience so hopefully you dug it and uh, hopefully you'll come back you know every episode's a little different so uh, but yeah uh, we're calling this uh, as you can hear from the background music I've heard that song before aka jazz you know also known as so um, yeah and uh, hopefully you've uh, enjoyed this so um, like I said please check out uh the Dr. Jazz Podcast and spread it to your friends. Remember, you can find the Dr. Jazz Podcast wherever you find your podcast. Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and the like. Uh, please feel free to write us and, and or drop a comment or uh, write a review. We'd always appreciate that. Also, you can check out our website with all that info. I've said it a couple times in the podcast, but that website is Dr. Jazz Podcast, D-R-J-A-Z-Z Podcast.wordpress.com. And as we always like to close and say in the famous words of the great Duke Ellington, thank you so much for listening, and we do love you madly. And until next time, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Y'all be good now, because in jazz, we trust.